Hey everyone, thank you for tuning into Hannah and Erica Birding. We're a couple of bird brains looking for adventure and some birds. We started this podcast to share our adventures with you and talk about some random thoughts about other birding topics. Just a couple of disclaimers, we're not experts, and if we discuss any controversial material, we hope that you'll keep an open mind, but also remember that what we discuss are our own opinions. We hope you had a wonderful 4th of July. Woo! <laughs> we spent our 4th birding around the Florida coast, the upper panhandle area, and ended up in a fun parade on St. George Island. Um, it was actually a massive water gun fight. It was so crazy. Yeah, there was like pickup trucks that had their beds completely full of water and buckets full of just water. And they were just spraying everyone that was driving by. Everybody had a squirt gun. It was crazy. It was, it was insane. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> So in this week's episode, we'll be talking about a snag survey that we participated in, St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge, and the duck stamp. Well, Hannah, do you have any birding news from this week? Just a couple of notes. Um, we have 18 Facebook friends. Woo! Woo! You guys rock! Um, we had over 60 listens on our first podcast, which I was pretty excited about. I was banking on maybe 10, maybe yeah. my mom and a couple other people. So 60 was awesome. Um, and also there was a ABA code three bird that showed up on June 26th in Shreveport, Louisiana. You want to guess what it was? I don't know. Some sort of heron, maybe? No, actually, it was a mass duck. Oh, my and gosh. And that's actually the fifth time, at least, that this species has been recorded in Louisiana. So, um, not super unusual, I guess. But, yeah, still ABA Code 3 if you're in the area. See if you can find it. Um, last little show note is we're going to Cuba. Yeah, Cuba. <laughs> uh, we booked a Norwegian cruise line cruise that's going to Cuba in August, and we need help finding a guide. So we've never been to Cuba, obviously, um, but we're hoping to do a little bit of birding while we were there, and we need somebody to show us around. So if you guys know anyone who's a guide down in Cuba, please send us an email or a Facebook message or something. We need to find somebody to drive us around. So, uh, getting into the show, a few weeks back, there was an advertisement on a Facebook page for volunteers to help with a snag survey. Um, we didn't have anything planned that weekend, so we decided to help out a little bit. And because we're birders and Texas Master Naturalists, we had no problem getting up at 5 a.m. to go volunteer. Yeah, so Saturday morning rolls around, and that's what we did. We met with the rest of the crew out at Tall Timbers Research Station, which is a research and learning facility just outside of Tallahassee. So that facility, Tall Timbers, it was it's a research station. It was originally a hunting plantation in the early 1900s. After the death of the owner in 1958, he transformed that property into, quote, a fire-type nature preserve to conduct research on the effects of fire on quail, turkey, and other wildlife, as well as on vegetation of value as cover food for and food for wildlife and experiments on burning for set objectives end quote it's a pretty cool location that we were excited to tour back in april with the florida ornithological society yeah i've never heard so many northern bob whites in my entire life it was crazy so i guess their work with game birds is going well um also we got our life for bachman sparrow out there it's just pretty fun yeah it was ni- nice and easy to find it was low on some hind limbs that's perfect kind of lifer. It's just super easy to find when you're in the right habitat. Yeah. So after a brief introduction to the project, the materials, and the fellow volunteers that were out there that morning, uh, we caravaned up to the Wade Track, which is a separate property just on the other side of the Florida Georgia line. The lead researcher is looking at snag longevity for cavity nesting birds like woodpeckers and nuthatches for a master's thesis with the University of Georgia. 
Um, yeah, and this location is renowned as one of the only remaining uh, old growth stands of longleaf pine woodlands, which is a very specific habitat. And there's only about 5% of these habitats still remaining. And it's actually one of the most endangered ecosystems in North America. Um, this location, it's it's closed to the general public and only accessed with approval. So please do not go up there and try to get in. Um, you have to have approval first from the site coordinator. Um, and these woodlands, they're managed for pres- with prescribed fires, which thin out the understory and maintain the trees, which was crazy when we went with the Florida Ornithological Society. Um, they told us that, what, every single acre is burned every year? Yeah, it's, it's broken up into smaller plots, and each plot is burned on different cycles. So some were burned burned every single year, some were burned twice a year, some were burned every other year. It was a lot of fire going through these properties. So that burn boss is really crazy busy coordinating yeah. all that. Wow. Yeah, so let's let's take a step back and look at what a snag is. So a snag, it's a commonly used term for a standing dead or dying tree. Oftentimes the top's broken off. Um, some of the smaller lower limbs are already um, burned off or broken off from decay. And it's, it's an incredibly valuable part of the ecosystem as the diversity of wildlife will dig out cavities for nesting, branches for roosting, and it'll attract tons and tons of insects for feeding. And woodpeckers love them. And I love woodpeckers. Um, so you might have like a snag in your backyard. It's just a dead, dying tree, like Eric said. And um, it's, a, it's a great place for wildlife. So if you have one of those in your backyard, you might want to consider keeping it. Unless, you know, of course, it causes a danger or poses a danger to you, yourself, uh, your family, or your yeah, property. As, as, as long as it's out, out in the back 40 of your property, away from your house or away from any power lines, there's no reason to cut them down. But you can get some really cool species in it. Yeah. Um, so after doing a short demo of the research protocol, like we learned about, you know, the diameter at base height. So just trying to figure out what that is is, or I'm sorry, not base height, breast height, so about the chest point, um, as well as looking at the the canopy cover and all that. Eric and I were given three plots to do. Um, We trekked out to the furthest north plot, uh, or snag, that was in our section, and these snags that we were looking at, so the dead trees we were looking at, they had been identified as being a dead tree in 2013 to 2015. So that's that's pretty old. They've they've been out there for a little while. It's it's 2018 right now. So that's a, a maximum of five years, th- like three to five years of being already dead. So it could have been dead for many years before yeah. that. So we bushwhacked through the one foot tall understory, which I didn't realize was heavily uh, covered in poison ivy, and I was wearing capris, but somehow I managed to make it out without any uh, poison ivy, <laughs> and. We did that for about two hours looking for the snags that were on the identified in GPS on the uh, PDF that we were given. We had about 16 of them to find, um, and we started to get a little frustrated along the way because these ones, like Eric had said, had been down or had died at a minimum of three years ago. Um, so some of them were quite old and a lot of it had been burned recently. And like Eric said, they had been burned in the past couple of years, almost every year. So if they were falling on the ground, we wouldn't be able to find them. Um, there was understory covering them or they had just all burned up. And, and sometimes we were just looking for essentially where the stump used to be. So it'd be like a hole in the ground where the wood had burned up. So trying to find a hole in the ground <laughs> where a stump used to be mixed in with all the under understory vegetation is, is pretty difficult. It's just like finding a needle in a haystack. Yeah. 
Um, but one of the most amazing things that we did notice was the diversity of wildlife that we saw. There were some milkweeds when we were first walking in, milkweed plants that, you know, are a great butterfly nectarine source. And there were at least three species of butterfly on a given plant, which was really neat. We um, saw a lot of birds there, which we'll be posting the eBird list in the show notes. And I even found a nest with a couple eggs in it. Which it was really cool. It looked like, like one you would buy from like Pier 1 and it was perfectly placed in a bush, but I was thinking, like, who's going to trek five miles out here to place this fake bird nest out there? So, it was. I'm assuming it was real. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it was. <laughs> we didn't get close enough to check. Um, it started getting pretty hot. We're in Florida, and it was in Georgia. It's It was 92 degrees at, what, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock when yeah. we, we quit, and pretty high humidity. So, we called it a day before anybody got heat stroke. Yeah, but not before seeing what what I think is probably the world's largest lubber grasshopper. <laughs> it was it was insane. It was at least at least three inches. It was a full. It was a monster. It you was could, super colorful too. You, you could have cut steaks out of this guy. It was <laughs> it was insane. Yeah, we'll we'll post pictures of of that and some of the other wildlife that we saw um, while while we we're out in the forest uh, on our Facebook page. We had a great time and would love to participate again. It's always fun getting lost in the woods, communing with nature, and helping somebody else in, in a project like this. This isn't something that we normally get to do. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, so that next day, Sunday, we went out again to look for the elusive reddish egret, which has thwarted us once again. Yeah, but I just want to reiterate that we have seen a reddish egret in the past. We've seen it in Texas a handful of times. We just haven't seen it in Florida yet. And since Eric's a lister, he's got to get it in every county, every country, every... Every state, <laughs> every every list I can possibly list it on. I, I, like, I like to see birds lots of times. <laughs> so this time we went to St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge, which is actually just right down the street here, um, looking for the reddish egret, which had been seen at Stony Bayou, which is one of the impoundments at the National Wildlife Refuge. And it was reported there earlier this week. Um... St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge, it's a pretty cool place. Uh, We've visited it several times, and many birders in the Tallahassee area visit it frequently uh, because it gets a huge diversity of birds there. But this time it rained, so we didn't get to see a whole lot, but we'll still post the eBird list in the show notes if you want to check out what we did see. Yeah, and speaking of National Wildlife Refuges, we didn't have to pay to go to St. Mark's this time, at least the entry fee. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because we, we bought our, our duck stamps this year uh, through the ABA website. Uh, this is good because we never have cash. Never. Don't rob from us. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have and anything. The, and the nature center, which is where we can use our credit cards to be able to pay the entry fee, it doesn't open early enough for us to be able to go birding. So speaking of the duck stamp, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recommends that we buy a, a federal duck stamp each year. And this has been one of the more successful conservation tools that was ever created. And that's to help protect habitat for birds and for wildlife. Well, okay, so a little bit of background on the duck stamp. Or as it's uh, formally known as the Migratory Bird Hunting and Conservation Stamp. It's literally a stamp that is issued by the federal government. It's required to have one for the hunting of migratory waterfowl, such as ducks and geese. It also acts as a National Wildlife Refuge Pass, which Woo-hoo! is how we, what we used it for uh, this past weekend. Am- amazingly, 98% of the proceeds go to the Migratory Conservation Fund. That's a ton. Yeah. Duck stamps were first created in 1934 to fund the Migratory Bird Conservation Act, which was enacted in 1929. 
So there was five years there where there was an act that had no funding whatsoever until the duck stamps were created. Which, uh, once they created the duck stamps, it allowed for the purchase of pres- purchase and preservation of wetlands for waterfowl habitat. The first, uh, the first stamp was designed by Jading Darling at FDR's request. Nowadays, the artwork is uh, selected in the only federally judged art contest in America and results in beautiful waterfowl renditions. The artwork is revealed every year at near the end of June, and uh, this year's winner was just revealed uh, last weekend uh, by, uh, I think, I hope I pronounced his name right, Bob Hotman. Uh, he, he had a picture of a couple mallards taking flight. It was, uh, it was it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a lot better than we, we could ever do. Yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah, I paint birds, but not well. <laughs> um, so let's just jump into our conversation about the duck stamp. We posted a poll on our Facebook page about the duck stamp, whether you buy it or not. Um, we had more people say they don't buy it than people that say they do buy it. So we know that people at least know a little bit about it, and some people actually buy it. I don't know if that's for hunting or to get into National Wildlife Refuges for free or not, but we did want to talk about it a bit since it just came, it was just announced this last weekend. Um, so if you purchase the duck stamp, it automatically counts you as a hunter by default due to the stamp being mandatory for hunters to purchase in order to hunt migratory waterfowl. So if you want to hunt migratory waterfowl, you have to have the stuck stamp. And this concerns a lot of birders because they want to contribute, They don't, but they don't want to be lumped in as a hunter. And one of our listeners actually left a comment on our Facebook page about this. Uh, I totally agree with what he said. He said that he thinks what the duck stamp does is important, but he also doesn't want to contribute Uh, his contribution to be attributed to hunters. We need a wildlife conservation stamp that's separate from the duck stamp. And I totally agree with that sentiment. Um, But since we don't currently have a wildlife conservation stamp, all we have is the duck stamp. What the American Birding Association has done is creating an opportunity for birders to purchase that duck stamp and contribute to wildlife habitat conservation under the guise of a birder rather than being lumped into a hunter. Yeah, and I'm, I agree with, with, uh, um, with the commenter. I agree with Hannah, too. But I also don't think that we need a separate program. That's, I feel like that's just adding more and more programs that all end up getting less funding as a, as a result of there being multiples of a, two programs that do the same thing. So I think what, uh, what would be nice to see is a way for us to be recognized directly by the federal government as birders purchasing it rather than just someone purchasing it as a hunter. So that's, that's kind of the, where I would like to see the purchasing going for, uh, for duck stamps. And I'd be on board with something like that, but I would like it taken off the stamp where it says migratory bird hunting. Um, because obviously that's not what we're going for. Uh, but I think what we need to do is in part broaden the conversation about conservation and how to quantify the contributions that wildlife viewers have in a tourism market. By adding value to a tourism, tourist market, it can lead to improvements such as conservation when the specific tourist market is nature-based. So if we're going to a given location, birders are going over and over and over again, the people that live in that market and that are being affected by it, they're going to be more prone to creating conservation and helping to protect wildlife and species in that area because they want to attract the birders. They want us to come there because that's where we're spending our money. 
Yeah, and, and if they're if they're attracting birders, then they're attracting money. So to get birders, you have to have better <laughs> habitat. Exactly. So it it's not necessarily a direct impact, but birders don't necessarily spend a bunch of money on equipment that's taxed and then funneled into the federal government or the state government, like you know buying. Um, fishing poles or licenses or guns or anything like that. But what we do is contribute to um, indirect things such as hotel rentals and restaurant sales. And that's in addition to the entrance fees that we pay into these locations, like the National Wildlife um, Refuge entry fee or like state park or something like that. Those aren't necessarily counted as birders going into those locations or just recreationists, which could be a variety of different things. Um, that can definitely improve more rural areas or smaller markets because we seek out more natural environments that have, haven't been impacted as much by human disturbances. And those are the locations that we're generally looking for when going out and looking for birds. Unless, you know, it's like a parrot or something like that in downtown Harlingen that yeah. they just hang out in the backyards. <laughs> yeah, you're looking at a Lowe's parking lot for, a, for some parakeets or parrots. <laughs> We've done that. Yeah, but it's it's pretty obvious when you when you go to some place like the Texas coast uh, during during the spring and there's a cold front blowing in, you'll see birders from all around the state, sometimes even all around the country, just coming there hoping to see some rarities that have gathered up in the little small pockets of habitat that are remaining. Um, and every single one of those birders either drove down or flew down, bought gas, bought uh, snacks at gas stations. Possibly stayed in a hotel, um, usually a, a local hotel, hotel right there in, in Galveston or um, near Anahuac or something. And they're spending money in the local economy for birding. So that's being able to um, add to the um, economy as birders is definitely something that we, we like to we like to see and we like to uh, promote as much yeah, as we promote. can. Yeah, because if we benefit these local communities, they have more of an incentive to uh, improve their areas and their habitat. So there are some instances in which economists have been able to quantify the boosts in an economy. Um, and most of those have been for like rare bird sightings. For example, I was reading an article the other day by Ryan Mendelbaum in uh, the Gizmodo, which I'll post in the show notes. And he discusses how a single blackback Oriole in the U.S. resulted in an impact of over $200,000 into one market. But that was just one case that was studied. Uh, but it shows that birds are important economically. And $200,000 in that local economy, you know, could have had a huge impact. And that's because of one bird there finding that one piece of habitat. Yeah, and that's that's just a, a single bird sighting studied by... In, in a single study. So you, you can look at, on a larger scale, every single year, some some different areas, like in the Rio Grande Valley with the Bird Festival, over on the east coast of uh, Florida, the... Um, space Coast. Space, space Coast. Yeah, there's uh, tons of festivals around Space here. Coast Festival. There's all these festivals that are little pockets of preserved habitat that you've got massive numbers of birders flocking to, and they're buying plane tickets. They're getting hotels, getting... The Food. roadside tacos, just everything mm. that you can imagine roadside tacos. that you need to survive, they're buying in, in, a, in the local economy, which is contributing to the economy. And that's, that shows the locals that this is something that's important to have birders in the area. Now I'm just thinking about a low tan vaso and I kind of want some of that. If oh, you haven't yeah. been to the valley and gotten corn in a cup, 
do it. Um, <laughs> so there have been a fair amount of studies that look into the contributions of Ava tourists. But what we need to do is keep that ball rolling and continue to show how we can and are contributing to these local environment, local economies. Um, and to practice what we're preaching, what we've done is starting July 1st, we're keeping a tally of all the costs that we accrue from our birding adventures. And we don't know what that's going to be used for. We don't know if we're just going to look at our budget and give it to our analyst. And he's going to say, you need to stop spending so much money on birding, what the deal is. Um, I wish we had an analyst. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, can somebody um, comment and give us an analyst to go to? Um, but we don't know what that's going to lead to, but maybe someday... Like eBird, you know, someday that that information will be useful to somebody, um, or maybe you know, in the future we can show that to a senator or something like that, and say this is the money that's going into our birding adventures. This is what we contribute, and we we want a voice. Yeah, yeah. So so this is our first year purchasing our duck stamps, and uh, we plan to continue buying them and looking for other ways we can contribute to conservation in the future. I just hope ABA continues to give us the opportunity to show the federal government that people other than hunters value a bunch of ducks in a swamp. <laughs> so, Don't drain that swamp. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, uh, thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and or learned something. Rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, and anywhere else you listen to us. If you'd like to connect with us, please follow us on Hannah Goes Birding on Instagram. On our Facebook page, Hannah and Eric Go Birding, or email us at Hannah and Eric Go Birding at gmail.com. We realize it's kind of long. <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of words all in a row. <laughs> tell us what you hated. Tell us what you liked. Uh, we're working on some branding, so if you have any ideas, feel free to let us know. If you want to draw us a logo, go for it. Oh, yeah. And uh, share with your friends to help build this uh, following. We appreciate you guys listening to us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Bye.